0: before the existence of written records human systematized combat from prehistory and into the modern day martial arts have been a part of the fabric of culture and civilization whether as a means of self-protection or to wage war or to compete or to preserve a tradition or to touch personal greatness these codified methods push us to ask questions to explore to express to test and to tell stories This is Jamie Club's podcast, the official podcast of Club Chimera Martial Art, where we take the path of the vagabond warrior to find knowledge and inspiration from people, events, and ideas. If you are interested in where to follow Jamie Club and Club Chimera products and services, please wait until the end of the show. In the meantime, if you think this product is worth the price of a cup of coffee, please click on Support the Show in this episode's show notes.
1: This episode, we reached the 10th instalment of our Martial Movie Massacre series. To celebrate this milestone, I intend to give you my 10 movie recommendations. These will consist of 5 underrated martial arts movies and 5 non martial arts movies that martial artists should watch. It's split between two episodes. I will alternate between these two types of film. A few things to say before I proceed these aren't all my favourite films some I love whereas others are just on the list because they meet the criteria I set for the show they won't be in any sort of order of preference and the list also is far from exhaustive but having said that there's still quite a lot to get into and I can't wait to indulge put down the gloves and pick up the popcorn for part one of Marshall Movie Massacre 10 or Triple MX or 3010 if you like odd cryptic sequel titles kickboxer 2 the road back an underrated martial arts movie quote sometimes it's better to flow than attack sometimes it is better to attack and a wise man knows when to do which does that sound like an ancient Taoist proverb to you it does have a certain yin and yang flavor maybe it could have been something that the great samurai musashi Miyamoto would have said in one of his works you might be surprised that these quotes come from comic book writer, actor and screenplay writer David S. Goya. And they're from his 1991 sequel to Kickboxer, Kickboxer 2 The Road Back. Goya is the man responsible for writing several comic book movies for both Marvel and DC, including the Blade Trilogy and Christopher Nolan's Dark Knight Trilogy. He was also nominated for his work on Alex Pryor's neo-noir sci-fi Dark City, Kickboxer 2, however, is one of his more overlooked entries. For most martial arts movie fans, the Kickboxer franchise will be long associated with the career of the then rising star Jean-Claude Van Damme, rather than its sequels. Kickboxer 2 The Road Back is not a great movie, but definitely deserves a better reputation than what it has received. The film's biggest stumbling block is the introduction of a new protagonist who is the hitherto unmentioned younger brother to Eric and Kurt Sloan. David Sloan, played by Sasha Mitchell. Despite the great choice of bringing back the big bad from the first film, Tong Po, as this movie's dragon, the connection made between David Sloan and his brothers in the previous movie makes it fail as a sequel. Dennis Alexio and Jean-Claude Van Damme, who played the elder two Sloan brothers, couldn't even be used for family photographs in the single flashback scene. Furthermore, the film doesn't tell us how Eric Sloan died. We just hear that Kurt was shot by Tong Po in retaliation for his humiliating defeat, and that love interest Mai Lee was also killed, somehow. It's as if this part was edited out or Goya forgot, stroke, didn't care, that Eric had been paralysed during the fight with Tong Po rather than killed. It's a small gripe. There are plenty of others we could pick through with the benefit of 21st century hindsight and the zeitgeist of today. If you're part of cancel culture and have real issues with separating art from artists, you might not be inclined to watch a movie starring Satcha Mitchell, who has been convicted and spent 30 years in jail for spousal abuse. A far lesser problem, but certainly one that would affect his martial arts reputation in movies, was the persistent rumour that Benny the Jet Eukeretz, who'd been employed to be the film's fight choreographer, had to double for Mitchell during his fight scenes with the aforementioned Tong Poe. Following in the legacy of the previous film, Tong Po is a character played by Michel Kisi wearing yellow face. And there's also the continuing tradition of not a single Thai character being played by a Thai actor. Like the first film, no one really has an authentic Thai name. This one even has a Japanese actor playing the movie's new big bad. Whilst on that topic, the entire distorted honour plot feels more like that of a deranged samurai medievalist than the behaviour of a Muay Thai manager stroke gangster. However, to butcher far superior literary material, I've come to praise Kickboxer 2, not to rebury it. The first thing that struck me about the movie as a teenager was that it didn't feel like a low-budget exploitation film. Director Albert Pyun has been unfairly dismissed as a latter-day Ed Wood, but this is the man whose debut movie was 1982's The Sword and the Sorcerer. Although it's no Conan the Barbarian or Excalibur, the film has a firm and resolute fan base to this day. I'd argue it is certainly more enjoyable than the far bigger budget Disney Paramount collaboration *Dragon Slayer*, released the previous year. We might want to applaud his resourcefulness with 1989 cyberpunk Jean-Claude Van Damme vehicle Cyborg. He forged the plan for this creation over a weekend with only the props and wardrobe from Canon Films' discarded Masters of the Universe sequel and Spider-Man movie as inspiration. However, if his 1990 version of Captain America is only to go by, we might be grateful that canon didn't go ahead with a Pyun-helmed Spider-Man. In Pyun's defence, it's far more respectful to the source material than the two 1979 Captain America movies, not to mention the 1944 Captain America cinema serial. For all its shortcomings, I'm going to controversially say that Kickboxer 2 is my personal favourite of the Kickboxer franchise. With Sasha Mitchell's background in taekwondo being secondary to his abilities as a straight actor, Goya and Pyun steer the film more towards drama than fight scenes. Like any third sibling, the character of David Sloan puts over a far more laid back attitude than either of his brothers in the previous film. However, we're immediately made aware that he's both burdened by and living in the shadow of these two characters. Again, this premise prompts so many questions about what actually is supposed to have happened between the two films, but one can appreciate that a fast exposition was required at the time. Goya presents David as deeply philosophical, which makes sense as a coping mechanism. His business partner says that David's brothers had always described him as the sibling with most heart. David demonstrates this with his youth programme, where we see him take one smart-talking homeless child off the streets and his refusal to compromise his integrity. We're presented with a faux big bad in the form of corrupt kickboxing promoter Justin Mackay, played by veteran character actor Peter Boyle. Mackay gets the burn off both the story's hero and its genuine big bad, as Goya provides us with two perfect put-downs that tell you all you need to know about the characters involved. Initially, Mackay tries to convince David to come on board with his fight promotion, flattering him with how impressed he was with his inspirational speeches, only to be turned down when he tells David he's disappointed. He's advised, quote, you should learn to live with disappointment. It builds character. At the end of his final scene, Mackay has had his entire promotion destroyed and he's facing criminal charges. He is painfully aware he has been played by the shadowy partner who turns out to be Tong Po's manager, seeking to reclaim honour by setting up a match between his fighter and the remaining Sloan brother. As consolation for his troubles, the manager Sanga, played by the great Karihiri Oki Tagawa, surprises Makai with a huge sum of money. He then leaves his astonished ex-business partner with an acidic twist on a well-used proverb. Quote, Some things money can't buy. Fortunately for me, you're not one of those things. End quote. Credit to Boyle, whose extensive TV and film work is worth checking out. He doesn't give us a cackling, moustache-twirling villain or an inept buffoon. His understated and human performance provides us with the all-too-common Hannah Arendt banality of evil. He's just like any other corrupt business person who worships money. Goya sets us up with an intriguing, self-contained first act that would have worked well as the first episode of a TV drama. Although the events of this part are directly connected to the main threat, the filmmakers wisely hold back on it. Like the first movie, what we're looking at here is a revenge story, but with far more layers. There isn't really a message of sorts, other than that a focused mind is the most dangerous weapon in the world. I guess that plays out with all the self-imposed baggage and psychological warfare that the lead protagonist has to bear. There has been some casual criticism that the movie takes itself too seriously. However, Goya and Pyun demonstrate a fair amount of self-awareness when it comes to the liberal use of wise sayings. Zian, the returning crew from the previous movie, provides the comic relief in this respect with a recurring joke of him trying to tell a fable and forgetting which animals are featured. If you came into this without seeing the first film, the continuity problems would not seem so jarring. The film's opening titles are covered by an appropriate stirring pop rock anthem by Eric Burnett, My Brother's Eyes. It sets the tone beautifully with a build-up and with lyrics that link into the plot as a bonus – it's on the nose and quite typical of martial arts sports movies, but no less cheesy than anything produced by Stan Bush, Joe Esposito, Survivor, Robert Tepper or Ike Stubblefield. Like many action movies since the 1980s, and in part inspired by the work of Jean-Claude Van Damme and especially the first kickboxer movie, there is an overuse of slow motion in the action sequences. Even to this day, this is a reoccurring cliché. However, there is one standout scene where slow motion is used very well. In order to better establish its status as a sequel and connecting more to the original film, the villain Tong Po was brought back. However, there was a problem. And that problem is the same problem that any sequel faces when they want to bring back a previous vanquished villain. In the first Kickboxer, Tong Po was introduced as a veritable monster – knee-striking and round-kicking a concrete pillar. He goes on to totally destroy the world champion Eric Sloan, paralysing him at the end of their fight. This is, of course, what inspires brother Kurt to go on his revenge mission to learn Muay Thai in the authentic fashion and defeat Tong Po in competition. By the end of the movie, in an effort to raise the stakes for the hero and also to push Van Damme's character's position to the status of superhero, Kurt is blackmailed into throwing the fight against his enemy. Tong Po is diminished to the status of a coward who's only able to physically beat up Kurt because of a blackmail threat. Once this burden is lifted, Kurt is able to bounce back with ease and dispatches his opponent with a display of trademark Van Damme techniques with no threat whatsoever from his enemy. This is even to the extent of Tong Po resorting to the cowardly villain cliché and charging Van Damme's character with a flaming torch. Kickboxer 2 reinstates and reestablishes the menace of Tong Po by introducing him in a nightmarish scene where he demolishes David's former wayward student in front of his own mother and teacher. Outside of the work of John Woo in the 1990s, I have rarely seen slow motion used so effectively and so justifiably. In conclusion, Kickboxer 2 The Road Back works well in spite of its status as a cynical cash-in and is best appreciated as a standalone film. Despite its obvious weaknesses, it follows what Best of the Best attempted to do in trying to build a genuine drama with legitimate actors around the martial arts-stylized action subgenre. It would take almost a generation before mainstream TV shows and movies would attempt this sort of thing with Cobra Kai, Kingdom and The Art of Self-Defence. Billy Bathgate, a non-martial arts movie recommended for martial artists. My first choice on non-martial arts movies I recommend for martial artists lists also qualifies as an underrated film. Why choose this box office bomb of a gangster film for martial artists? Well, there's certainly at least an entire podcast, if not a series, to be made on the connections between organised crime and martial arts for a start. Chinese martial arts have a long integrated connection to secret societies. Avron Albert Baritz provides us with a scholarly dissection of the martial arts rituals and practices which have long been integrated into the lives of Chinese gangsters. Wing Chun, a martial art especially popular in Hong Kong and made even more so worldwide thanks to Bruce Lee, was once referred to as Gangster Fist due to his triad connection. Professional combat sports, especially those that proved to be very profitable, were as susceptible to any other large-scale money-making activity to mob involvement. From Jack Dempsey becoming Al Capone's favourite fighter in the 1920s to Sonny Liston being under the control of Murder, Inc.'s Frankie Carbo and Blinky Palermo in the late 50s, not to mention a certain European drug cartel's supposed involvement with some of today's heavyweight fights, boxing has a very ignoble association with the Western world-born organised crime. Over in Thailand, fight promoter Clue Thanikul became the most influential figure in Muay Thai. He was also a chao fo, a Thai crime boss. Then there is the publicised scandal of the early two thousands that linked the yakuza to sumo. The nineteen nineties continued the mountain built in the previous two decades in historical gangster movie making. It couldn't have had a stronger start, with Martin Scorsese's Goodfellas going down as not only one of the greatest movies made by its director, or one of the greatest of its genre, but also considered by widespread surveys of critics and public as one of the greatest movies ever made. Five years later, and although Scorsese would not top its success, he would show that the magic was still present, with Casino. The 90s unleashed a flood of movies featuring retellings of the lives of real-life organised hoodlums. Scorsese's attention seemed to lie outside of the Prohibition and post-Prohibition gangster eras. This was when the National Crime Syndicate and the Five Families established their positions. Perhaps Scorsese felt more than enough had been done in Hollywood in the 30s and 40s about this era. Besides, fellow New Hollywood director Brian De Palma had already won awards and critical acclaim with the box office smashed The Untouchables, a 1987 remake of the 1959 TV series that centred on the Prohibition gangsters that left the field wide open for other filmmakers who weren't so discerning about tackling this most famous of eras. 1991 saw the release of three notable mainstream movies, Bugsy, Mobsters and Billy Bathgate. Of the three, Bugsy was objectively the only one that was a success financially and critically, Mobsters was the most critically panned and Billy Bathgate, well, it just made under a third of its budget back at the box office. This was despite it being headlined by Dustin Hoffman and Nicole Kidman who put in great performances and a supporting cast that included Bruce Willis, Stanley Tucci and future Boardwalk Empire star Steve Buscemi. Curiously, the consensus of critical opinion was that the movie was too cerebral and not emotive enough for a gangster picture. E.L. Doctorow, who wrote the novel on which the film is based, distanced himself early on when he saw how far the movie had deviated from its source material. However, its adapter was no cynical Hollywood hack. Billy Barthgate's screenplay writer was no other than the highly respected British playwright Tom Stoppard. The premise for the story is certainly in line with themes that would interest Stoppard. Like his play Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are Dead, the titular hero of Billy Barthgate acts more as a hapless pawn and observer of the main drama. Dr. O's novel clearly gives Bathgate more sovereignty, allowing him to profit from the fall of his gangster boss, the real-life bootlegger and numbers racketeer Dutch Schultz. As far as gangster movies go, my teenage self never found Billy Bathgate as entertaining or rewatchable as Michael Karbenikinoff's mobsters, but it certainly has more depth. Sergio Leone's 1984 epic Once Upon a Time in America is rightly credited as the first earnest and honest romanticizing of the gangster mythos and image, Maintaining this tone, we're given the untouchables with Robert De Niro's blustery portrayal of Al Capone and Billy Drago's malicious portrayal of his henchman, Frank Nitti, helping audiences to sympathise with their justice-seeking opponents. However, the 90s looked like there might be a return to the tragic anti-heroes of the pre-Leone era, and even the great Scorsese would not escape this criticism. The aforementioned mobsters, being something of a young guns in Prohibition era New York, is probably one of the most blatant offenders in this respect. The same cannot be said for Robert Benton's far less bombastic Billy Bathgate. Dutch Schultz is held up as Bathgate's hero at the beginning. By the end, we don't even get to see the villain make a particularly heroic last stand. And unlike the novel, Bathgate has nothing to show for his hero worshipping only the lifelong threat that Lucky Luciano might kill him and his family should he ever talk to the police. Besides indulging my interest in true crime history and movie history in general, the real reason I've chosen this film is for one scene only. In a rare moment of gangster mentorship, Schultz takes his young gopher, Billy Bathgate, to a makeshift shooting alley. Here, two of his soldiers demonstrate their contrasting gunmanship. One neatly hits his targets time after time, whilst the other blasts away in a scattershot manner. Schultz asks Bathgate which of the two men he would choose as his bodyguard. Bathgate picks the more precise gunman because of his clean grouping. Schultz disagrees, explaining this type of shooting is best used when making a clean hit and when afforded the luxury of time. By contrast, a constant spray and pray approach is what's needed when you're in a tight spot. We might apply this to self-defense situations. Jeff Thompson might have described the strategy of three-second fighter, that is, the defender who preempts his enemy at the interview stage as the sniper's option, but the tactics being employed are that of constant forward pressure. Once the first strike has been thrown, it should be immediately followed up by another until the threat has been removed. The same applies, and even more so, for regaining the initiative situations when the defender is under fire and needs to temporarily cover and return aggression to overwhelm the initial attack. This scene, from an underperforming and largely forgotten gangster movie, perfectly illustrates this concept and conveys what Jeff used to say about martial arts for self-defence. Look for the messy. Beautiful Boxer, an underrated martial arts movie. My commitment to my honeymoon in Thailand meant that although I bought some rather nice Muay Thai shorts, I didn't get over to any of the great gyms of Bangkok. However, I did grab the opportunity to watch a night of fights at the famous Lumpini Stadium. During interval time, I saw some very excited Westerners posing for photographs with a certain Kathoi Moy. My wife and I had previously seen the 2003 biographical movie Ekache Yukongarthams Beautiful Boxer on the advice of my old crew Tony Hayes and wondered if this might be the real life Nong Tomb. This was immediately confirmed and she kindly posed for a photo with me. Due to the nature of my parents' work in show business, the appeal of posing with famous strangers, no matter how high I hold them in regard, has long since waned. However, the movie Beautiful Boxer was such a moving example of what a martial artist can be and do that this was definitely a moment I wanted to commemorate. The career of Nong Tum has to go on any respectable list of fighters who pushed the boundaries of their sport, helping to not only strike a positive blow for transgender politics, but also in helping resurrect interest in Muay Thai. Sadly, the closest Beautiful Boxer got to mainstream critical recognition was a Best Actor Award for Asani Swan, who played Nong Tum and Best Makeup to Kreson Sampethe Cherion at the Thailand National Film Association Awards. All of its other awards were in recognition of its LGBTQ content and message, although it is unsurprising, I fear the film gets stigmatised. It is unapologetic in its identity politics, and it's a Thai language movie, but that does not mean Beautiful Boxer is not accessible to a far broader audience. It becomes very sad that a work of art might become so recognised for its contribution towards a noble cause that its other values are eclipsed. Director Ekache Yugongrathram, and at this point I should point out that I am probably butchering these names in the language of Thailand, provides us with the combat sports drama in the truest sense of the definition. For all of Asani Suwan's heartfelt and honest portrayal of Nongtum's self-aware flamboyance, the ever-present Muay Thai elements are delivered without fetishization. The matches are never stylized, but provide a rich backdrop for the story's hero to flourish in her personal battle for acceptance. We're shown fight scenes that feel real, but not in the pseudo-reality of gritty titillation. They provide a rather refreshing state of normality that is rarely seen outside of boxing films. Nong Toom's character, in the film as she did in real life, used Muay Thai as a means to both express her identity and her individuality. On a crude level, it promoted the spectacle and drew attention to both her and her sport, aiding both to prosper. However, it also made people think deeper about the culture of Muay Thai and the potential for Nak Moys, so often like the pugs of boxing, yet with shorter careers and fewer long-term prospects. Last year, I used Beautiful Boxer as an example of a martial arts film that did not fit the unfair action movie subgenre so many Asian martial arts are stuffed under, and therefore it is often dismissed as being more of a straight drama film. This year, I don't undermine that argument but rather reinforce its status as a martial arts drama as well as a poignant biographical movie. We see how much martial arts can be used as an effective vehicle for the individual, how fighting spirit can transcend the ring and win against the odds outside in life. A Few Good Men, a non-martial arts movie recommended for martial artists. A Few Good Men is a legal or courtroom drama centering on the court-martial of two marines who admit to killing one of their fellow soldiers. The soldiers claim that the killing was accidental and part of an unofficial punishment they were ordered to carry out by their commanding officer who, in turn, was instructed to make the order by the head of his unit. A defence team are left with the task of proving that these two soldiers were obeying a direct order in an unquestioning culture of rigid command. For those of you who have read my book, Wrong Fu, you'll be aware of my essay, Jessup Thinking and Pious Fraud. Here I reference Colonel Nathan R. Jessup's famous incriminating rant from the witness box in Aaron Sorkin's 1989 play, A Few Good Men. The role was immortalised by Jack Nicholson in the 1992 feature film adaptation, directed by Rob Reiner. My main reason for encouraging martial artists to watch it, as explained in said essay, is to observe the dangers of pious fraud, Endemic in martial arts subculture. All too often, martial artists assume a position of arrogance that students are not ready for certain information and that training should be dumbed down and diluted. I have known teachers who state that people don't like to think, shouldn't be encouraged to do their own research, and we should pander to a received mode. Such an approach is ultimately disempowering, which is the opposite of what martial arts and self protection teaching should be trying to achieve. There are other reasons that make A Few Good Men such an excellent film for martial artists to watch. It's easy to just praise it for the universally excellent acting performances in Reiner's expert direction, but Sorkin's writing is unfairly put in the shade. He not only wrote the original play, but also completely adapted it to the screen on his own. A Few Good Men has been accused of being somewhat predictable, and Roger Ebert even moaned that too much was being spelled out for the audience. But we don't make such complaints about classic plays where their entire synopsis are often presented in the titles. This is not a whodunit, but rather a story about people, their choices and actions. When we consider that the military is the birthplace for a wide range of martial arts, this story has a lot to ask regarding personal accountability from the highest to the lowest of ranks. The movie's main antagonist, Colonel Jessup, for example, thinks he is above the law, and even morality because he serves a greater good, that, in his words, saves lives... He uses his authority to enforce what he sees as simply tough training. That, in his perverse social Darwinian view, strengthens his marine unit. Such fallacious thinking allows bullies to justify hiding behind others when they should be taking responsibility for their own actions. Taking personal accountability might take the form of using one's abilities in the service of what one believes to be morally right, rather than squandering them for an easy life. This raises the subjective yet very important question of the judgement call, something that should always be addressed in both martial arts and self-protection training. One might follow the principles of ensuring personal safety and be observant of the law in not using one's skills to prevent or stop a crime. This would not be in violation of good self-protection training – or one might choose to intervene with these skills and still not be violating training principles. It's a judgement call that can be determined by a wide range of factors outside of systems of training. In A Few Good Men, Lieutenant Junior Grade Daniel Coffey is the main protagonist, a talented defence lawyer's son who is known for plea bargaining rather than going to trial. He lives in the shadow of his famous military lawyer father, but the case he's put on in A Few Good Men inspires him to take agency and risk everything. Coffee is moved by the passionate morals and motivations of his fellow defence team, as well as the concept of honour exhibited by his clients. These individuals will also go on their own character arc, ultimately delivering a personally accepted, bittersweet lesson when hearing the court's verdict. The film asks valuable questions regarding the nature of honour. The Integrity of Systems and Human Behaviour High-risk situations produce experienced and hardened individuals whose knowledge and wisdom should not be ignored. These people have helped build valuable systems and methods for handling adversity, dealing with the worst the world can throw at humanity, and making it safer for the majority of civilization. However, even packs of well-bred and highly trained dogs can catch rabies. A Few Good Men upholds the values and principles of a military with integrity and it justifies the moral reasoning behind a proper military judicial system. But it also looks at the personal interpretation and how much of it is left to self-governance. Are we facing systematic failure or personal accountability or both? Gladiator, an underrated martial arts movie. Mention the name Gladiator in reference to a feature film, and the chances are you're going to think of Ridley Scott's hugely successful reinvention of sword and sandal epics, 2000's Gladiator. This is not an underrated movie. In fact, I will be prepared to make the controversial argument that, much like James Cameron's Titanic of 1997, it's an overrated movie. The Gladiator I am praising is the 1992 boxing drama directed by Rowdy Harrington, Whereas the 2000 film was helmed by the man responsible for Alien, Blade Runner, Thelma and Louise, and The Martian, the 1992 feature was sailed into the rocks of condemnation and worse still, total obscurity by a Hollywood director who's cut his teeth as the best boy on a nightmare on Elm Street. Harrington's directorial debut was in 1998's Jack's Back, a very unusual take on the Jack the Ripper copycat story trope that divided critics and general audiences. Sir Ridley Scott has received three Oscar nominations, a Golden Globe Award, two Primetime Emmy Awards, as well as two BAFTAs, one of which is the Fellowship Lifetime Achievement Award, the highest accolade the British Academy bestows. Harrington's only award of note appears to have been a Golden Raspberry nomination for Worst Director in his most famous movie, 1989's martial arts action movie and cult classic Roadhouse. Scott's Gladiator won five Oscars, four BAFTAs and two Golden Globes, not to mention at least 26 other notable nominations in major film festivals. It also made $460.5 million on its $103 million budget and is credited with paving the way for historical epics in the 2000s from The Last Samurai to 300. Harrington, who took over from the original Oscar-winning director of Rocky, John G. Alverston made a movie that was panned by many critics and remains unpopular to this day. 1992's Gladiator was made for $20 million and lost $11 million at the box office. Yet, despite being undeniably entertaining and a well-executed epic spectacle, the 2000 film conforms to virtually every anachronism about ancient Rome one can imagine. Presenting little progress from the days when such epics had last been in vogue, we get liberties taken with history that are so contradictory from what we know happened that it would have worked much better if they had been presented as an alternative reality. The story is predictable and characters are cartoonish, with only Viking Phoenix's portrayal of the Emperor Commodus just verging on being nuanced. 1992's Gladiator tells the story of the teenage boy Tommy Riley, played by James Marshall, whose father's financial debts has led him to be moved to a new neighbourhood. His father's new job, taken on to pay off these debts, means that his son is left alone most of the time to fend for himself and at the mercy of a local gang. Gifted academically and with a good heart, he has the potential to be an honour student and wishes to pursue this path. However, an altercation with the aforementioned gang reveals his skills as an amateur champion boxer. A local promoter of unlicensed boxing matches, Pappy Jack, played by Robert Logiga, sees Tommy's potential. He convinces his boss, Jimmy Horn, played with commanding charm by the great Brian Dennehy, to buy up Tommy's father's debts to force the young fighter to box for them. The film uses the backdrop of racial tension and how cynical forces exploit those in poverty. There's also a fair amount to be said about the dangers of boxing, a topic that had previously popped up in 1989's fifth installment of the Rocky franchise. Gladiator 1992 has a smart script by Lyle Kessler and Karate Kid creator Robert Mark Kamen, offering some interesting variations on old themes. Before I go through why this movie is worth watching, I think it's a fair criticism to say that its protagonist is a Mary Sue. He remains highly principled with a strong moral compass from the very beginning and virtually all the problems he has to face are down to the faults of others. His character arc, if you want to call it that, pretty much comes down to him losing his innocence in learning when to fight dirty and also how to execute treacherous strategies. True, he's taught some valuable lessons by his new coach, but there's no friction between them, or much in the way of a personal relationship. James Marshall offers us a somewhat vanilla performance, and yet I couldn't imagine it going any other way. It's comparable to Kevin Costner's Elliot Ness in The Untouchables, which I mentioned in the previous recommendation. In both instances we are more interested in the virtues they represent and are more invested in their cause than we are in their characters. What then makes the movie is the array of colourful characters that entertain us in the way they manoeuvre around and try to manoeuvre these heroes. The two standout supporting cast members have to be the then rising Cuba Gooden Jr and Brian Dennehy. Gooding plays the role of Abe Lincoln, a virtuous gang leader and talented boxer who's trying to fight his way out of poverty for his girlfriend and baby daughter. Gooding's charisma is evident in every one of his scenes, contrasting with Marshall's reserved and restrained acting. He eats up the scenery. Pearl Harbour is often cited as an example of Gooding's shining through as a co-star in a substandard film, but I'd argue that if you want to see an example of him flexing his acting muscles in a far better movie, then Gladiator is a superior choice. Brian Dennehy gives us the bad guy we love to hate. As far as character actors go, who can forget his bullying small-town sheriff in First Blood, or his overwhelming performance as real-life serial killer John Wayne Gacy? This isn't to say he wasn't great as a good guy alien in Cocoon, or all the numerous other more sympathetic roles he's played, but he has to be in anyone's top ten list of best actors to play villains. His Jimmy Horn provides the right balance of charm and arrogance to make the role believable. He might have had a stunt double for his fight scenes, but suspension of disbelief isn't difficult with the way Dennehy commands his scenes. Horn romanticises the days of bare-knuckle pugilism, a link that has regularly been made by commentators on unlicensed boxing. He also tells us and later demonstrates a less discussed reason why boxing gloves became more popular. The general consensus of opinion is to follow English champion and trainer Jack Broughton's supposed humanitarian view after he killed an opponent in a bare-knuckle fight. Gloves were introduced to make the sport safer for the person being punched. Many have since contested this view, arguing that the gloves just really protect the hands, allowing for a far greater volume of punches to the head. Horn puts it quite succinctly quote, Top of the head, hardest part of the body. That's why they invented boxing gloves, kid. End quote. Horn's veneration of 19th century pugilists who fought for hundreds of rounds before returning to work in mines yet happily exploiting the poverty-struck youths around him for his own benefit, is the sort of elitist and macho attitude we would see being adopted by Enron a few years later. His dragon, Pappy Jack, would reinforce this attitude later when he indirectly justifies the way Horn is blackmailing Tommy Riley. As far as Pappy Jack is concerned, his boss is giving the younger boxer a real purpose – this is in opposition to the soft kids of today who only have a need for superficial things like a new haircut or a car. He neglects to mention that it's okay for Horn and him to indulge in superficial vices at the expense of the lives of teenagers. The tragedy in this sentiment might be seen in the subplot of Romano Estrado, a Cuban immigrant with aspirations of shipping his father's ashes back to his homeland before indulging in getting a waterbed. Romano, a cheerful and optimistic character, is totally naive to the way he is being exploited and the huge risks he takes in the uncaring, unregulated world of underground prize fighting. The film isn't without its a few good men moral on squandering of talent either. Tommy Riley's English teacher notices her promising new student is being severely distracted by extracurricular activities. She provides us with this memorable line quote, You have a gift for language, Mr Riley. But talent is a common thing. People waste it every day. They abuse it. They take it for granted. Success comes not from what God has given you, but what you do with it. It's really up to you. End quote. This is the same jaded teacher whose opening line to her class was, quote, Before you ladies get pregnant and you gentlemen murder one another, you'll learn the joy of reading. This way you have something to do in your ninth month or in your jail cell. End quote. The villains throughout most fiction often get the lion's share of good quotes. Here's a throwaway line that stuck with me: quote, "Everyone is a no-show until they show." End quote. These are the words uttered by Pappy Jack. Robert Leguizas' performance in this role proves his ability as a great character actor. He creates a Fagin-like role that is totally corrupt and villainous, yet is somehow likable in a way. After seeing this movie in the mid-90s, I often recalled this simple line about uncertainty to both keep me on my toes and to remain stoic in the face of disappointment. Needless to say, this tallies up with David Sloan's life-coaching advice in Kickboxer 2. This is not to say the shady Pappy Jack didn't have an optimistic side. Quote, Don't give me this bullshit about Murphy's Law. If I run into Murphy, I'm going to kick him right in the balls. End quote. Tommy's coach, the seasoned old pug Noah, played by Ossie Davis, gives us this little gem. Quote, Fighting is not hitting. Any fool can hit. Fighting is making the other fella miss. He misses. He thinks. He worries. It's a mind game. End quote. This quote is definitely one that has resonated in my own training and teaching. When I watch boxing or kickboxing matches, I'm often almost as intrigued by the amount of times a fighter makes his opponent miss as I am by the times strikes land. As for the line, it's a mind game, this is something Noah repeats again when Tommy faces a particularly nasty opponent who is using Roberto Duran-style psychological warfare. Noah's line comes up again, quote, you're angry, that's what's going to get you beat out there. Anger is your enemy. It's like what I told you, it's a mind game. Outthink him, and then get in there and outfight him. End quote. Later, he'll paraphrase himself with, Anger is the enemy. It's certainly something you can take away from the Roberto Duran-Sugar Ray Leonard initial fight and rematch. I don't disagree with punk icon John Lydon's line, Anger is an energy. But that isn't a contradiction. Anger is an easily accessible emotion, for the most part, and it has genuine power but it has to be channelled in order to be productive. The feeling might inspire us to seek justice or even bring gravitas to a serious situation, but we must severely limit the role it plays. The mind game reminder is something that I regularly bring to my own training in many different ways. One of my best training partners would echo it back to me whenever we faced a particularly hard challenge. And that brings us to the end of part one of Marshall Movie Massacre 10 – Coming soon, in part two, we will cover three non-martial arts movies, recommended for martial artists, and two more underrated martial arts movies. My other books, Wrong Fu and Mordred's Victory and Other Martial Mutterings are also available through Amazon as both eBooks and paperbacks, and I'm also selling signed copies. These works are collections of rewritten and re-edited essays I've produced over the last two decades. Rong Fu is a prequel to my Bullshit Tzu and the Fight to Make Martial Arts Work project, which deals with critical thinking in the history of martial arts. Mordred's Victory and other martial mutterings covers the ten years I ran Club Chimera Martial Arts as a school. Nowadays, I teach private lessons, courses and seminars. These are bespoke services that put you in charge of your martial arts journey. I teach self-protection and martial arts cross-training. You can train with me one-to-one or in a small group. I count individual clients, couple clients, parent and child clients and various other combinations. These can be taught face-to-face or virtually. I also regularly teach clubs, societies and associations nationally and internationally. Please go to clubchimera.com for details. Please don't forget to subscribe to the show on iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, Owltale or whatever podcast platform you're currently using. If you could leave me a five-star rating and a review, I'd be really grateful. You can also follow me on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and at long last, TikTok. Facebook also has a members group in addition to the main business page, so please send in a request to join in with the training discussions and be a part of the wider CCMA community. I'm also uploading new content to YouTube. There are various short videos, vlogs and full video versions of some of these podcast episodes on there as well as filming of my various lessons so you get an idea of the different services that I provide. Please check out the services section on the YouTube channel to find out more details on these individual services and suggestions for where you might want to take your training with me. Again please subscribe, like, share and leave a comment. All favourable engagement on these platforms helps keep CCMA going. Now, I don't know where you listen to this show or watch or read any of the other free content I produce. My time to listen to podcasts usually occurs during dog walks or solo car journeys or when I'm undertaking some mundane task or other around my home. I watch videos when I'm in the kitchen. My reading time occurs when I'm in a waiting room or during a rest period at home. My guess is a good number of you will think nothing of buying a coffee or some other beverage when you're commuting, or waiting, or on your break. If you believe that the work I produce is worth the price of a coffee, then please click on Support the Show in this episode's show notes. Whether or not you choose to do this, my thanks to everyone who joins me on this Vagabond Warriors journey, and I look forward to sharing more travel notes with you all on the next show.